Welcome to episode 360 with my guest Seamus Kirst. Uh, this is from a live recording we did uh, in Oakland a couple of months ago. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by Johns Hopkins University. Every day is about making tomorrow better and is the number one ranked school of public health since 1994. Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health can help you become a public health advocate to transform communal health in a holistic evidence-based way. With 20-plus graduate programs and more than 300 global research projects, it's the oldest and largest school of public health. Learn more at jhsph.edu slash feelgood. Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, protecting health, saving lives, millions at a time. And we will put a link um, on the website under show notes to that. Uh, my name, maybe I should introduce myself. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. Uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> now there's more. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, this, uh, my teeth are whistling tonight. I'm like, uh, I'm like an old school Western guy, Gabby Hayes. Uh, this show is part interview, uh, part listener confessions, uh, via the surveys you, uh, can fill out online. They're anonymous, of course. And, um, the link on our website to uh, Amazon might not be working uh, right now. We had to take it down for reasons I won't go into, but hopefully it will be uh, it will be up back uh, very soon. I want to read a struggle in a sentence. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Tornado, and about her depression, she writes, it feels like being stranded in the middle of nowhere and watching a plane pass overhead. Oh my God. Yes, yes, and fucking yes. That is so, that so nails it. Uh, A snapshot from her life. Uh, She also deals with uh, anxiety and codependency. Last year, I went to Guatemala. I was raised in a pretty sheltered environment, so that was way out of my comfort zone. While I was there, my friend took me to this little ranch place that had a canopy with loads of zip lines and canopy bridges over the forest and horses. I'm terrified of heights and horses, but guess what? I did it all. I did the zip lines, tiptoed across the bridges with my heart in my throat, and I even rode a horse. I was so proud of myself. Three for three. Then I went back to my friend's house. She's from Guatemala, and I was staying with her family, and her mom said, wow, I guess, uh, insert her name, doesn't travel much. Why would she bring the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe on a trip across the ocean? I went in the bathroom and cried. How can it be that after being so brave, I was so scared of seeming like an idiot? In hindsight, Edgar Allan Poe isn't a great beach read. (laughs) That fucking made me laugh so hard. Like if you had an opening of a movie where you just panned on the beach, you show one person, you know, they're reading some trashy beach novel and another person's reading a romance novel (laughs) and then the third person probably with like pale skin is reading the collected works of Edgar Allan Poe that would that, that would say everything you needed 
to say about that character. Thank you for that. That really made my day. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by Samantha B. And she writes, 20 years ago, my parents announced to me and my brother and sister that they were getting divorced. They had planned to get sandwiches from a favorite bakery, then go sit in a beautiful park somewhere, private and green, where any of us could get up and walk away to throw rocks in the river if we felt the need. But it was raining. So instead, we sat in a cramped and steamy car outside the bakery, all of us too miserable to even look at the sandwiches. As I stared blankly out the window, trying not to see my brother crying or my little sister looking utterly confused, I realized I was staring into the car parked next to us and that I knew the people inside. It was a family whose kids I used to babysit, and I had heard some rumors that the father had had a sex change, though I wasn't sure. Um, I wasn't sure I believed it. This is long before anyone in my little world was, quote, woke about transgender issues. But looking at them now, I could see that there were indeed two women in the front of the car, one I recognized as the mother and the other, uh, and one who looked like a plump female version of the father. My dad waved at her awkwardly. She waved back in the same way, and I saw that one of the daughters in the back seat was wiping her eyes. They were obviously having a meltdown of their own. In that moment, my only clear thought was simply, Jesus, families are fucked up. I love things, though, where you realize that you are you are not alone in it. Uh, and I wanted to read that before this. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a, a woman who calls herself Anxious Mess. And um, a snapshot in, in her uh, struggles are uh, anxiety, love addiction, and codependency. And a snapshot from her life, she writes, I constantly rely on my phone and social media to distract me from the fact that I'm slowly wasting my 20s away doing nothing of value. It's depressing seeing the world go on without you. Everyone else is having fun. Everyone else is traveling and falling in love and chasing dreams. I switch between Facebook and Instagram. Instagram back and forth until my phone dies, and then I'm alone with my thoughts once again. There are so many myths at work in the depressive pit you are talking yourself into. Number one, there is no keeping up in the world. It's not a race. Um, name a single thing that um, that you missed out on, on social media. I, I can't ever think of a single thing. Anything that's important enough, somebody's going to contact you about it. But we have this belief that the world is going on with without us. And I lived most of my life believing that myth. And the, the other thing we do to drive ourselves crazy, which you're doing here, and I understand it, you're in your 20s, you're comparing your insides to other people's outsides. You write, everyone else is having fun. Listen, I, one of my best friends in the world was one of the happiest people on the outside, and she shot herself in the head in 2001. You never know what is going on inside somebody. Never assume that this is a race and that you're losing it. It is a way to torture yourself. And like you said, distract yourself. The thing to do is find out what's underneath the need to distract yourself. Find out 
what those feelings are because you will be running from them the rest of your life if you don't do the work to find out what's happening. And feeling your feelings will not kill you, but running from them might. That's been my experience. I don't want to. I don't want to get all preachy. I've told you guys that uh, one of our sponsors is uh, BetterHelp, and uh, it's an online therapy place. And I always like to give you updates and tell you. Uh, uh, about what I've been working on, and uh, as you know, I've been fighting a uh, little battle with nighttime ice cream lately because, uh, like I was sharing with um, our survey taker, I am running from something, and I don't know what it is, and it's so vague. It's just easier to eat ice cream to fall asleep than it is to... Uh, get still and face what whatever fear or discomfort is underneath it. And um, as I began to talk uh, to my therapist this week, I realized that I am feeling some financial anxiety. As I, as I mentioned to you guys, they changed the algorithm that, men, uh, that measures downloads for podcasts. And so ad revenue for, for the podcast has gone down by about 45% in the last three months. And uh, it was, you know, it's been freaking me out a little bit. Uh, and so my therapist said, well, she always likes to say this, let's look at the facts on the ground. And so she broke down what, you know, the budget is, what expected income is, you know, how much a, a month are you spending on, you know, your electric bill and this and that. And it turned out to not be as catastrophic as I as I thought it was in my mind. And she said, vagueness is where anxiety loves to thrive. And so maybe uh, Anxious Mess, who uh, filled out the, the last survey, maybe um, talking to somebody, putting a pen to paper and writing out what is actually going on instead instead of having this vague feeling that there's this gigantic race that you're losing because it, it it's a terrible way to be your own worst enemy and take it from me I'm, I made that mistake for the first 40 years of my life um, so if you want to uh, check out BetterHelp uh, go to betterhelp.com uh, slash mental uh, fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if uh, online counseling is right for you. Uh, you need to be over 18 and you can communicate uh, more than once a week with your counselor via email, live text, um, chat, phone, video. Yeah, it's um, there's a bunch of choices. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Ant Tony. And uh, about his depression, he writes, uh, like wearing a weighted vest that you can't take off but feel lazy for not being able to figure out how to take it off on your own. That is so fucking good. About his anxiety, like a room that is filled with a dozen voices from past memories that are all screaming, you should be doing something more important in your life as you try to stay calm in a casual conversation. Oh, the 
these are so good. Um, and then about experiencing, um, uh, prejudice, he writes, when you see me empty the trash or vacuum the floor, do you think it's because I'm lazy or didn't go to college? I paid for my undergrad cleaning up after you, but I'm just another black guy who feels your judgmental eyes and ignorant comments. I work here because I'm too financially unstable and self-loathing and afraid to leave. Um, and then a snapshot from his life. My mother walking into my room as I am stressed out about work, finishing my degree, and my own sadness. To have her give a monologue slash a lecture on how my isolation is hurting her feelings in the family but not asking if I am okay. Not that it would matter. I'm not comfortable to tell her that I've been sad for years. So I sit there, ride the guilt trip, and wait for her to finish so I can try to work on my paper and feel like shit for the rest of the night. Thank you for filling that out. And, um, man, I, I don't know what it is like to experience all of the issues uh, that you have, but I sure know what it's like to um, isolate and feel sad. And that's a terrible place to be. And I, I hope you can find somebody to, to reach out to because it definitely sounds like home is not a, a safe place for you to uh, feel validated. This is an awful moment thing, uh, filled out by a designer depression. And uh, she writes, as an artist, I now have severe carpal tunnel in my dominant hand. Three main fingers on that hand are numb, and I've been advised to have surgery. I have mixed feelings about the surgery. Not because I'm afraid of them making a mistake and ruining my career as an artist, but because I've enjoyed using my numb fingers to masturbate. <laughs> there has to be... There has to be like a medical term for that when you decide to let your uh, let your numb fingers be so that you can so you can feel like the there's it's another person uh, touching you. You know you've heard that uh, like when you sleep. <laughs> there used to be this thing in college where uh, called the stranger where you would. You would sleep in such a way that your arm would fall asleep and then you would not be able to feel your hand and you would masturbate and it would feel like somebody was masturbating you. It was called The Stranger. Uh, I don't know what the name would be for leaving the numb fingers, uh, letting the visitors stay. <laughs> how many how many visitors are we going to let stay on this hand? Uh this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by ambiguously invisible, and um, uh, he is a trans male, and uh, about his depression, he writes, uh, a choke collar that never lets me stray too far from my somewhat safer than the outside world apartment. God, do so many of us know that feeling. Our world gets so fucking small, but in our mind, safe. Uh, about being a sex crime victim, always planning two escape routes from any room, and about experiencing sexual bias, always editing my past so I'm not talking about girl stuff while people are actually reading me as male. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, this woman calls herself, I just want to turn my brain off, and about her OCD, she writes, um, if I do every little thing right, 
then I can stop worrying about doing every little thing right, and then I can finally be happy. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting and different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Akazaya in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, Jody. Jody, sit down for a second if you, uh, if you uh, wouldn't mind. I just want, no, <laughs> over here, grab a microphone if, uh, if you would. Um, this might be the last uh, series of, of uh, live recordings uh, here in, in Oakland that we do for a while. Uh, Jody sold the newspaper uh, recently, and um, it's been underwriting the, uh, the, these recordings. Uh, I think this is like, what, our sixth or seventh one, maybe something like that? And uh, I just wanted to acknowledge uh, Jody for all the work she's put in. Um, she has made it so simple for me to come up here because, honestly, the thought of, of like, trying to find airfare in a hotel and uh, where's it, where are we going to record it and all that stuff just makes me want to go take a nap. And so when she said, I'll take care of all of it. You just have to show up. I was like, thank you. Thank you so much because I do love doing these and getting to meet you guys. And uh, I met uh, a couple of listeners before the show. Uh, and it's so moving to even just hear five minutes of your your story and what the podcast um, means to you. It's it's nice because a, a lot of times I feel like I'm doing it in a in a vacuum there in my uh, my bedroom. <laughs> um, but I want to. Uh, I think this story that I've asked Jody to share. In fact, I even read uh, a written version of it on the podcast. But um, to honor Jody and to highlight why she likes the podcast. Uh, I've asked her to share a story uh, with you guys. And she's been kind enough, despite her hating uh, speaking publicly, to, uh, to share it with us. Thank you. <laughs> um, I do want to clarify one thing, that uh, I wasn't a majority owner of the newspaper, so you know I'm kind of going along mm. with the outcome anyway. It's still independent, locally owned, uh, which is fantastic um and so please like keep supporting the express and good things to come but yeah and and they uh have a rare amount of uh journalistic in integrity given the uh environment in in today's world of quote-unquote journalism um so yeah do please keep supporting them and um i didn't know that you weren't a majority ownership so now i actually don't want to hear your story mm -hmm. Good knowing you, though. Okay, so uh, this happens, what, like four months ago, something like that? 
Yeah, in March, I, um, I'm not close with my parents at all. They live in Kansas. Um, and I refuse to go back to Kansas. When they pick me up at the airport, they like to drive me straight to the church to show me the church. It doesn't matter what time of day or what weekday or whatever. Um, so I meet them elsewhere. And in March, I was going to meet them in Bullhead City, Arizona, and um, which has casinos. And I thought I would take a little trip on the way there just for my own pleasure. And so I ended up going down near the Salton Sea, just me and my dog and my, um, my four-wheel drive, my Jeep. And um, By the way, w- w- uh, was the idea that gambling would make emotionally dead parents more interesting? <laughs> It kind of does, because without that, it's a distraction. Um, It's the one thing we can do together. Um, So I, on the way down, I camped outside Pyramid Lake in L.A. under the stars in the middle of the desert, and then I went to the Salton Sea area, and there's a desert down there as well, just sand dunes, like badlands, cactus and sand, and that's it. And I drove up into the canyons and just made a fire and was watching movies and drinking a bottle of wine and realized I hadn't seen my dog in a long time. And I'm, my dog is my life. And, uh, and I had seen like coyote warning signs in the, in the state park there. And he's always off leash. It's never been a problem. And, uh, I thought, Oh my God, a coyote got him. So I got up and I started looking around and I'm calling and I'm looking for like, is there blood on the ground? Um, any evidence? And it, and it was pitch dark. And, uh, and I'm howling because if I call his name, he doesn't really do anything. But if I howl, he'll howl back. That's just our thing. That's how we communicate. So I'm climbing up these sand dunes, howling up at the moon, trying to find my dog. And what's your dog's name? Dexter. Yeah. And the sand dunes are slippery. So I keep falling and I'm scratching my legs up on rock and, rock and cactus. And um, there's nothing. And I, I go for hours going up and down the sand dunes to the point where I can't talk anymore. And I finally just give up, and I crawl into the back of my car into a fetal position and just cry. And I text my friends, even though I have no signal, just because I wanted help. And um, and sure enough, like a few hours later, the dog just comes out of nowhere and jumps in the car, and it's totally fine. Whatever. Um, <laughs> my dog's an asshole. But... Um, <laughs> Well, you named him after a serial killer. Is it a big surprise? (laughs) That's another podcast. Um, (laughs) But anyway, so I finally, I'm just exhausted, and I finally meet my parents in Bullhead City, and I can't talk. I can hardly walk. And I thought for the first time in my life, I'm actually going to tell them a story about my life that conjures emotion. And we're having dinner, and I'm right to the climax of the story, right? Like, we... We don't know if my dogs are going to make it back or not. And I'm crying. I can barely talk. And my mom interrupts right at the climax and starts talking to my dad about whether or not there's too much garlic on his french fries. And she doesn't just ask that one question and move on. She goes on for five minutes about it. And then finally when she stops, it's just dead silence. I'm like, I'm not going to enter this conversation again. And that was it. Like, they have no idea if my dog ever came back or not. So anyway, that's just one story. That's why I love this podcast. Like anyone who listens to this podcast can relate. Um, that's, the, that's the real stuff in life. Yeah. There you go. Ch- Jody Colley, ladies and gentlemen.
Thank you. Uh, I'm going to bring up our, our guest now. He uh, is a freelance writer. Uh, he's the author of a, a book called Shit Faced, so you know he's going to be a good guest. Please welcome Seamus Kirst. Thanks for coming, buddy. Thank you for having me. Um, I come from the Oakland of the East, so I'm excited to be here. Brooklyn, he's, uh, he's referring to. Although, uh, would Brooklynites chafe at that comparison, or would Oaklanders uh, chafe at that comparison? Or would everybody? <laughs> Probably everybody. Yeah. Uh, where to begin? You're 26 years old? Yes. Um, some of the... Uh, things that we might touch on tonight, um, your battles with depression, um, suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, um, uh, your sexuality, um, what, what am I uh, missing? What yeah. other fun stuff? <laughs> um, yeah, then like substance abuse, some eating disorders mm -hmm. within that, and then... Hmm. That's all I can think of right now, I'm sure you know. I think that's or, enough. I think stuff will keep coming. Yes, yeah. Um, you were born where? I was born in Syracuse, New York, so okay. upstate. Okay. Post-industrial. And, and give, uh, give us kind of a sense of what the uh, emotional environment of your uh, house growing up was like. How many kids? What was your parents' relationship to each other and kind of to, to you guys? Yeah, so I have two siblings. Um, I have a sister who's actually five months older than me, not a biological miracle. She was um, adopted, and then during, while once my parents decided to adopt her, it became easier for them to become pregnant, like once they stopped focusing on it. The same thing happened with me. My brother is seven months older yeah. than me, yeah. And it's actually really crazy. It's a phenomenon, yeah. Growing up, I thought that it was very unusual, and the more I talk about it as I get older, I realize that that really does happen. Yeah. Quite often. It does. Um, and then I have a younger brother who is like four years younger than me. Um, my parents, I grew up in like a very loving household, but I would also say that both of my parents had pretty like traumatic childhoods. Um, my mom is one of eight, and she grew up in a super alcoholic household where her parents were like abusive, mm -hmm. um, emotionally, and yeah, mostly. She didn't grow up in an alcoholic loving household? <laughs> There's yeah. a phrase I've yet to hear. Yeah, she didn't have like yeah. fun alcoholic parents. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and then my dad grew up. Um, so I think actually something that's like I've always found really interesting is that three out of four of my grandparents were orphans and like were raised in orphanages. So I think that like kind of like that generational trauma was definitely at play in both of their houses. Um, and then my dad grew up like in a small factory town outside of Buffalo, New York. Um, his dad like worked at a factory, and his mom was a cleaning lady. Mm -hmm. And they had five kids, but there were like ten. It was like really kind of almost like Oregon Trail esque. Mm -hmm. Like five babies, yeah, kind of died, which is really dark. Um, and so, yeah. So like, I think his mom had a lot of issues with, and dad with, like grief after. All those, yeah, probably I mean, their losses, and then as kids, and then their losses as parents. Um, so so anyways, you, you that's a really long way of yeah. No, no, no. That's that's yeah. interesting stuff because it sounds like uh, to become 
emotionally invested in uh, another human being was probably something that was fraught with uh, anxiety for mm-hmm. for them. Definitely. Like, okay. I feel like it's, I mean, I guess whenever you read about, like, history of that time, like, I think it's something that it's hard for me to even comprehend, like, how many, how usual or how much more usual it was to, like, lose a child or, like, with the world wars to, like, lose a spouse. And it was just, yeah. like, definitely a different time with what you could come yeah. to expect, I think, with... Ooh, the lights just kicked down in know, a very wow. traumatic way. <laughs> um, it's mood lamps. Yeah, There's seasonal I, affective disorder lamps. Our, our, our <laughs> <laughs> this is the right This is the I right requested crowd. them. They're like, that's actually, it's not my color temperature. That will make me bipolar. <laughs> Could we make it uh, 100 degrees more yellow? Um, so go ahead. Um, but yeah, so my parents were like really very loving and like, um, they loved each other and they loved us. Uh, they, but like, I think that they had their own things they were like dealing with in terms of trauma in their childhoods. And like, um, we definitely grew up in a house. Like I feel like as I've gotten older, they've become much like not much more, but like they are financially comfortable ish now, mm-hmm. but like growing up, like money was like a serious stressor. Like they always had a lot of debt. And, um, so I think in that sense, it was like, you know, there, it was like a loving household, but there was also a lot going on and like a lot hovering over them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, give me some, uh, snapshots from your, from your childhood that you think are kind of, emblematic of either your inside or your outside world? Um, hmm. Maybe how you felt like you fit in or didn't fit in, your view of yourself, your view of other people, your place in the world, what the future held, any any of those yeah, things. Yeah, so actually like, I think one thing that I always found really interesting, and actually my mom and I did an interview like two weeks ago with NPR StoryCorps, and we were actually talking about this. Um, so she grew up in like a super alcoholic household where there was like this huge importance put on kind of hiding what happened in the household and like, you know, like curtains drawn, like mm-hmm. what happened stays in here. Now, when you say super alcoholic, did the alcoholic have a cape? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he, the alcoholic fought villains. A, um, a big A. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's like a big A in the sky and then he'd yeah. leave. Um, <laughs> and he'd always show up late to help <laughs> with a shitty excuse. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so like she grew up in that type of environment and, um, so I think we, that kind of carried over into our childhood and we like had, I don't know, like it was definitely, we have like a combative environment in our house in the sense that like people could become very like explosive, not like physically, but like I would say everyone in my family has like a temper. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was just kind of like. I think somebody was fighting with somebody like most days of my childhood and there was just like as it carried on like as my issues became more of a thing like we all kind of continued that sense of like hiding things and like you kind of had a reality at home and then like a reality that you would kind of express the outside world and like my dad was the local columnist growing up and like Syracuse is small so like he was a local celebrity I would say and like I think that even, like, added more of an importance of, like, you know, you don't want to be, like, the dysfunctional family because it's, like, 
kind of like fucking up right. his career yeah. if you do that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, give me some examples then of when it was loving. Yeah, like, I mean, it was always loving. Like, even within that, like, I think that was the thing that I always found interesting. And actually, earlier, I was even talking to somebody about this with, like, how you sometimes model, not sometimes, a lot of times, like, model things that your parents did. And, like, my parents love each other very much, but also would get into big fights. And, like, so then we would, as siblings, and, like, when I had my first serious relationship in college, like, I would get into really huge fights with my now ex-boyfriend, and, like, I kind of thought that was normal, and, like, when that would happen, he would look, you know, like, disturbed, because that wasn't how he grew up, and so I think that, like, that was kind of the environment, like, it was very, like, um, like, everyone loved each other, and we would, like, do all these fun things, and my parents were, are, like, genuinely, like, the most selfless people I know, like, and cared so much about like being present. Like my mom would work nights at a group home so that somebody was home with us all the time that we weren't being like raised by babysitters. Wow. Yeah. So they wow. like really, and they are like, you know, like me and my siblings are kind of brats and like, they very much like always put us first. Um, but then like within that, there just was a lot of like cyclical, yeah, I don't like stormy yeah. relationships. Yeah, it's like the kind of trauma it sounds like they went through, it's going to reveal itself in some way. Right. Or another, either like, shutting down or anger or, you know. Mm-hmm. And like my mom always talks about like with my book, like a lot of it is more focused on kind of the darker stuff because it's like nobody wants to read like then I went to the playground and like swang for four hours and went down the slide right um so it's like hard to work that stuff in but she's always like what about all the like positive memories and so like now I'm trying to make more of a point of being like there were a lot of positive memories like yeah I did in many ways have a happy childhood it's just like I also like in certain ways didn't (laughs) I, I totally understand that because I forget to do that sometimes on the podcast and as I'm listening back to an episode I'll think um boy if I were that parent or that other person I would feel kind of slighted because it doesn't paint an entire picture of me but as a podcaster you want the most compelling stories in that hour hour and a half however long Mm -hmm. it is so um so uh what are what are some some of the uh uh, moments you you shared one that she worked nights uh so that she could be with you uh during the day i mean that's beautiful yeah and just like i feel like that's such a like symbolic gesture that really like represents how they approach our whole childhood and like um i don't know, even like i went to brown university for undergrad and that was in providence rhode island which is like six hours away from um Syracuse and like my parents would like drive to Providence pick me up and drive me back that day like they were just like those types of parents like I don't think there was I mean obviously like I'm sure a million times I would be like you don't love me blah 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 but I don't think there was ever actually a moment where I like questioned that my parents loved me yeah the actions are so so important right you know um so give me some um some moments from from childhood, I, I feel like we've established the ways in which they were loving. Unless you have uh, more that you think uh, you should share with us. No, I mean, okay. yeah, like my dad was just like literally coach, like you know what I mean, like very involved, very loving. But okay, all right, then that's not the full point of the podcast. Yeah, no, now let's throw them <laughs> under the bus. Yeah. We've dressed them up nice. Now let's hit them with the bus. 
back up over them and call it a night. Yeah, I'm reappropriating this as Pleasantville podcast. So we'll just yeah. keep talking about playgrounds and Little League. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what, what would you say was the first moment in your life that you can recall where you felt different, out of place, uncomfortable in your skin? Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I don't know. I think it's really interesting. Like, I'm very young, and even when I think back to the 90s in terms of how people talk about, like, gender and sexuality now, it's like we've already come so far, which is saying a lot because we still have so far to go. But, like, I think that I remember, like, growing up in the 90s, and, like, when I was younger, like, I had a sister who was five months older than me, and, like, I really only wanted to play with, like, quote-unquote girls' toys at that time. Like, I always played with, like, Barbies and, like, little castles with princesses and, like, was loved Disney and, like, was just never that interested in, like, you know, like, Tonka trucks are fucking boring. So I, like, wasn't into that. Um, unless but, there was a cute guy driving the Tonka truck. Yeah, or unless, right. unless a princess was, like, yeah. zipping it around. Um, <laughs> but, so I think that, like, I mean, I remember from the time... My, my earliest memories are probably of that. And, like, that's something that, like, as a writer, I've revisited a lot because I think that for, I think, like, so many gay men, at least, that I've spoken to as adults have similar memories of that. And it's, like, a, it's, and I think that, like, when you're little, it's just, like, scary to feel that isolated and different. And, like, I feel like it's, like, interesting... I mean, I've always, like, found these, like, weird parallels between, like, how I would, like, play with a Barbie and, like, once I realized that, like, that was taboo or whatever, how I would, like, hide it in a way that, like, I would later hide, like, binge drinking when I was 22, but it's, like, weird to look at those behaviors and, like, being secretive as a three-year-old or a four-year-old and, like... Imagine how powerful it it would be if Disney made a movie about... A little boy or a little girl, yeah, and their story mm-hmm. of you know um, realizing that they were different from the mainstream as right. a child, but supported it in a way that showed that playing with the the dolls and embraced that that mm-hmm. part of them. How how helpful that would be to kids to see their story validated, um, right. That would be nice. Some, would you? One of you get on that? Write that screenplay. I know. Wait, isn't Pixar like in Oakland or there around here? Yeah, <laughs> let's go with picket signs after. But in, as much as I hate corporations, um, Mattel did that commercial like a year ago yeah. with the boy playing with the Barbie, and it's like I'm sure they were, you know, had crazy ass people like coming for them and oh, so i really what, give them credit I would for that so love to give, read all those letters and mm-hmm. respond to each and every one well one of just the, like, a xerox picture of my dick is my signature <laughs> <laughs> well and like one of the pics i forgot which finding dory or something like had a lesbian couple for like 0.5 seconds recently and like people yeah. freaked the fuck out so this movie that you're saying i think is so important because i think that it's good to make people freak out yeah and and to set the bar above we tolerate you. Right. You know, to maybe we love you for who you are. Mm-hmm. That would be that would be nice. Right, yeah. It is interesting how like pejorative tolerance is. Yeah. Like Yeah, just the sentiment behind yeah. that. Like we'll allow you to live, but Yeah, you know, I with I, slight disdain. 
I had a, a moment uh, in my recovery about six years ago where, and this is as a you know, white, hetero, cis, cisgendered male, I realized that all my life I had thought that God or the universe or whatever had merely tolerated me despite being disgusted by me. So I can't imagine what it would be like for somebody who isn't all of the, you know, quote unquote, uh, normative, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't check off all those, right. All those and even boxes. within that like larger equation, like I'm so privileged and like, yeah, the only way in which I have ever experienced depression is through my sexuality and like that there's so many people who have are dealing with so much more. Yeah. Um, and, but then, yeah, also like, I guess, touching off that too like I grew up um, Irish Catholic if you can't tell by my name Um, and so that was always like something and I didn't even go to like like my church was like very liberal and was always like pushing back against like the Vatican and like their weird rules Um, and would like get in trouble like there was like a picture of them like giving communion to like the Chancellor of Syracuse University who was Jewish or like they would have women at the podium with a fancy name the altar or whatever um and boy you didn't go to church did you no the sad thing is i did i went to church until eighth grade but i was just like reading lord of the rings and the pews um but i do know the word for pew so i'm gonna give myself a pat on the back for that one here's a test what the the little booklet what what were those called not the bible the no they'd be in the pews the salette oh yeah salette Woo! I've never even heard that word. <laughs> but yeah, I did leave in eighth grade. <laughs> yeah. So you are a good Catholic. Mm-hmm. I had my first communion. Yeah. So um, pick up with the uh, where where we left off. Uh, childhood memory. Uh, did did you feel bonded to your sister? Was she uh, accepting of? you being uh, uh, different than the stereotypical boy? Yeah, um, and my sister and I, like, we were, like, each other's first best friends, and, like, we are very, very different people, um, and our lives, like, have taken super different directions, but we're still close. Um, But I remember, like, this... She, when she was younger, like, in dealing with... um, Kind of, like, coming to terms with, like, being adopted and, like which I think is also a super traumatic thing to do. My parents were always, like, honest with her about it from the time she could, like, comprehend it and with us, and they had an open adoption, so, like, her birth parents were around. So she, like, struggled with gaining a lot of weight when she was younger. So, like, I feel like she and I always had this thing where we would be, like, you know, awful to each other and say, like, horrible things. But then, like, if anyone else said one of the things to the other one, we'd, like, punch them in the face. Like, we kind of had this thing that, like, if anyone went near like calling me gay or whatever she would just be like you know ready to throw down and if anyone called her fat like i was ready to do that too even though then like cut to five minutes later both be calling each other those names (laughs) that's uh fucked upedly beautiful Uh, yeah yeah. awful some is uh (laughs) is the word we we like to use um so what's the next piece or phase or thing you want to share um yeah, so I, I don't know. So I guess, like, the, on the continuum of life and mental health. So, like, from the time that I was young, like, my family, going off of what I've already told you, um, we would, like, be in family therapy a lot. Um, at, but it was, at whose uh, insistence? 
I actually don't remember. That's actually a really good question that I should. I'm actually curious now. Yeah. I don't Maybe it was the town. Yeah, the street. <laughs> the yeah. neighbors <laughs> formed an association and yeah. asked us to go. Um, but yeah, so we'd go and like it would be, you know, um, volatile. And then we'd kind of like stop going. And then, but I just think I like always remember being in therapy, like for as long as I can remember. And my parents always talk about that. I was like very moody, but like not in like a, you know, like attitude way, but more just like would be even from the time that I was really little, like my parents said that there was a side of me that was like very serious and like dark and like depressive. Um, and so by the time that I was in middle school, I had like my own therapist who was like also kind of the family therapist who I like really did not like and was kind of reminded me of like an evil version of Ellen DeGeneres. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'd like have a lot of... So she would cut you down while you danced? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She'd like throw a plush armchair at me and not give me a check at the end of the segment. Um, but so she... And I would just, like, clash so much. But then, like, I think in sixth grade, I went on antidepressants. Um, And then by seventh grade, I'd, like, been hospitalized for overdosing on those. Um, Did the antidepressants ever help? They did. uh, I don't know. Like, at that time, I'm not sure that they did. Now I'm on antidepressants and, like, love them Um, Mm -hmm. and have been for, like, four years. But I think that, like, growing up as a kid, you're, like, so... You just see, like, mental health interventions in any form, I think, as being so punitive. And, like, mm-hmm. I think that when you're, like, a little kid, all you really want is to be, like, quote-unquote normal. Or, like, and so anytime people are, like, you are different and you need this thing to make you better. Or, like, you know, you take it as, like, something is wrong with you. So I think I was always very... Um, resistant to antidepressants in that way. So I feel like from, like, sixth grade through being 22 I was always like on and off of antidepressants and then obviously once high school came I was like drinking too much mm-hmm. while on them which is worse I think than yeah. just not being on them uh so was there something that triggered the suicide attempt yeah so I think that probably is like I mean I don't think it's like coincidental that that's around the time of like puberty and like sexual awakening and mm-hmm. um the actual trigger was that I prank called the mayor of Syracuse who was like the father of one of my classmates and got caught. So that was like the, and you know, got grounded or whatever. And, but so that was like the immediate trigger, but I think the like underlying trigger was definitely like being, you know, 13 or whatever and realizing I was gay and just kind of being like, fuck. Yeah. (laughs) What was the prank? The prank, um, the prank was like pretty fucked up. Um, I had the feeling. Yeah. So I, it was like I was at a birthday party and we were all kind of going around a circle doing prank phone calls. And then mine was that I prank called the mayor and like said that the, I didn't say a real school, but kind of just said like at the school and said that the gym teacher was like getting too close to my child and like pretended to be a parent. So it was very, it was one of those things that you're just like, you even say aloud when you're older and you're just like, what the fuck? Like, and when you're 12, that's so like funny to you. And now you're like, that's so awful on so many levels. I think the most awful part is that a 13 year old could think they would sound like an adult. Right. Yeah. There's a gym teacher who's. Exactly. And that, yeah. You know, like no star six, seven. Um, 
unfortunately. Um, but yeah, that was <laughs> not my finest moment. Do you think there was anything subconsciously that that made you think of that prank? Well, that was like, I mean, that was like a rumor about a gym teacher at our school. And I feel like, which I don't think is an uncommon rumor yeah. about gym teachers at lots of schools. Um, because, I mean, they're kind of, you know, get close. Um, but then I think, too, that it was just, like, part of my personality, especially at that age, was being, like, the one who would kind of, like, take it the farthest. Yeah. Like, it started by being prank calling, like, Taco Bell and saying we found, like, a finger in our cheesy bean and rice burrito or whatever. And then it just very quickly escalated to this thing that was, like, really, you know, slanderous. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, so... What can you remember from your decision to try to uh, overdose on them? I think the thing that really freaks me out to think about with that day is like, so I wound up like going home the next day and my parents were just kind of like seriously. And it was like awkward because as I was saying, my dad was like the columnist and he had to like work with the mayor and like, Mm -hmm. um, I went to school with his son. So it was kind of like he was like, you really have to, like, my punishment was probably that I was, like, grounded for a few days and, like, had to apologize, which, you know, I mean, just everything when you're 13 is, like, the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I th- also remember, like, I'd been reading, I think it was that I was reading Riding in Cars with Boys, and one of the scenes in that was actually that she, like, overdoses on Advil or something. Um, and I remember just going to my room and just being kind of, like, fine for a second, and then just, like, thinking about it, and then kind of committing to it, and, like, I don't, I even, I remember, like, getting Sprite or something, and then just, like, taking pills, and, like, the thing that I always find very, like, jarring about it was, like, first of all, that I was, like, kind of calm while doing it, and then also just, like, that, like, drinking Sprite is so, like, childlike, and then while doing this thing that in certain ways is a very juvenile, impulsive, knee-jerk reaction, but is also such a, like, heavy, dark decision that you associate with, like... I mean, I guess you don't really associate it with adults because a lot of teenagers, unfortunately, either try to or do kill themselves. But, um, yeah. I think just, like, the, like, combination of, like, handfuls of pills with, you know, like, sugary, sweet Sprite is, like, very bizarre. Yeah, Did your parents know? Well, yeah. So, like, I literally took a, like, um, not a jar of pills, a bottle of pills, and then immediately was calm until that point, and then, like, you know, flipped out and ran downstairs. And my dad took me to the hospital, and I had to, like, drink liquid charcoal, mm-hmm. which I, like, imminently uh, projectile vomited all over the floor. And it was just, like, very... And, like, one of the... I mean, Syracuse is small, so, like, one of the nurses was, like, the mother of a classmate. It was just like, which I think is scary when you like have this thing that you're like, I want to not talk about this. And like now this person's mom knows. Yeah. Um, was it ever, uh, did word ever get out? Actually, no, I think I might've told like maybe like one friend about that Mm -hmm. at the time. And they were just kind of like, Oh, like, and we were like, I remember being on the ski lift and like telling him and it's kind of, that's the best place to do it. Yeah. And he was like, okay, let's do like this trail. (laughs) Bad news. Bad news should always be uh, broken at a height. Yeah, where somebody is literally unable to leave you. Exactly. Or kill themselves. Yes. Broken elevator. uh, I'm carrying your baby. (laughs) 
<laughs> or I'm carrying a baby and it's not yours. <laughs> um, how did your parents handle it in the aftermath? Um, I remember like having to go to a like family wide psychiatric evaluation after, um, and I think they were just like. I don't really... I feel like at that point, they probably really didn't know what to do. Um, like, I think I kept going to my therapist for, like, a little. But, yeah. It just kind of... I don't think they knew what to do, to be honest. Which, like, I don't blame them. I don't think I would know what to do either. And uh, would it be fair to say that it was something that uh, nobody really wanted to bring up again, including you? Yeah, especially for, like, that time being. Because, like, I mean... Then, like, high school came, and that happened again. Like, in high school, I very quickly mm-hmm. had, like, a really scary binge drinking issue. And, like, my freshman, sophomore, and junior years of high school, I was, like, hospitalized for alcohol poisoning all three of those years. And, like, the first time, got, like, hypothermia because I was outside sledding when it happened. And then the second time... I actually, like, again, took a bottle of pills while being drunk and drank mouthwash as well. So it was, like, and after that, I went to rehab inpatient for a month, which was my sweet 16 present. Um, And um, so, yeah, so then I think after that, it became a little bit more of, like, a conversational topic because it was, like, this is not an isolated incident. Like, all these things are recurring behaviors, and that was really... Alarming. Did you uh, agree with uh, your parents that there was a drinking problem? Um, no. Like, no. which is so it's so bizarre now. Once you get past things and you like look back and you're like actually unable to even like revisit the mindset of how you convinced yourself that when you're like 16 years old and you've been hospitalized three times for drinking that that's not a drinking problem. Yeah. And even that, I went to rehab and was like. I wasn't like, oh, I'm an alcoholic. I need help. I'm like, okay, maybe they'll get off my back if I like go to rehab for a month. And I was wanted like a break from high school and like all this stuff. So like rehab was the obvious solution. Um, in rural Pennsylvania. Um, I didn't even go to like Malibu promises or whatever. When did you, uh, when did you admit to yourself that there was a problem? When I was like 22. So like seven years later. Okay. I think when I, well, I don't know. I think there were points where I was like, I'm having a problem with drinking, but I don't think, I think it was harder. It was so much easier to do that than to be like, I have a drinking problem. And then I was kind of like, okay, like I'll, because there were a lot of periods where I would take like two months off or whatever. And it was kind of like, you know, like I was like, okay, like did my time, I can drink again or whatever. Like I'd kind of like reset and then would start again. And a lot of times it was like weird because then when I would start again, I'd be so conscious of it that I would be better about it for like a few months and then I would just kind of like let go again and be a hot mess. I I think like one of the big um, difficulties for an untreated alcoholic to see is that they think their problem is that they need to make different choices Instead of realizing they've lost the power of choice. Right. And that they need help through the form of human connection, a more practical way of living, etc., etc. And especially if it's a periodic drinker, like it sounds, um, mm-hmm. you you would be. 
And also, like, I stopped drinking when I was 22, so all of my drinking was confined to, like, late middle school, high school, and college, which is, like, a time... All those environments are binge drinking cultures, or, like... It's exciting, because you're getting away with something. Yeah, and I think that, like, a lot of people who still drink now probably can look back at their drinking in college, or, like, their drug use, or whatever, and be like, whoa. Yeah. And, like, a lot of people, like, turn the corner and were fine, but, like, it just wasn't... Like, I think now in the real world, when, like, college felt like not the real world. Like, it's weird that I even just said that. But, like, if you were being hospitalized that much, I think it would very quickly be so much more jarring. Where in college and high school, it was, like, it was jarring, and I know it's not normal, but it was, like, much, people accepted it so much more. And some people, it would be a badge of honor that, you know, I party that hard that, you know, they had to hospitalize me. Right. Um well, and I think that, too, the thing that I did with... So, like, I was also, like, my high school valedictorian, and I was, like, you know, really crazy when it came to school, and I, like, would always still kind of do the stuff I needed to do, and, like, I got into Brown and, like, went there and wasn't, like, killing it academically, but I was, like, fine. And so I think I was always able to, like, be fine enough that I was kind of able to tell people to, like, fuck off when they were trying to, like, intervene and try yes. to... How could I have a problem? I got an A. Right. Yeah. Yeah, like, I'm like, how could I have a problem? I literally did better in high school than everyone else around me. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the high-functioning alcoholic is, you know, that is a, a difficult, uh, a difficult um, truth for, right. for that person to see and the outside world. Mm -hmm. um, when I shared with friends of mine that uh, I was sober uh, and that I was an alcoholic, People, friends that I drank with, 99% uh, of them were like, no way, mm -hmm. no way. But if you're that person, you know, because you know what you're like 24 hours. Yeah, and going <laughs> back day. to what you were saying about, like, rules and stuff, like, I also had a lot of issues with, like, drugs and, like, especially prescription pills. Like, I was really addicted to Xanax when mm -hmm. I was mostly while studying abroad in New Delhi in India, um, and... Like, I also had some, like, issues with cocaine, and, like, it was, like, I kept being able to, like, I was, like, okay, I'm not going to take Xanax anymore, I have a problem. Like, okay, I'm not going to do cocaine anymore, I have a problem with that. Okay, like, I keep getting alcohol poisoning, but it's only when I'm drinking, like, liquor, so that's Ixnade. And then, like, I got rid of, I guess liquor was the only thing. I was going to say I got rid of beer, but I don't mm -hmm. think I did. Um, or if I did, it was because I stopped eating gluten. Um, and... Um, so, but it was, like, easy to, like, give all these things up, but it was, like, I, somehow there was, like, alcohol was always still there. Yeah. Or even, like, I would, even, I, like, after I graduated, I had this, like, really scary night with, uh, when I broke up with my ex-boyfriend where I, like, just became completely blacked out in New York and freaked out at him and, like, tried to run into traffic in Manhattan, like, on a highly trafficked street. And, um... Which would be every street. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> One of those streets with lots of traffic. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I started like seeing an alcohol therapist in New York who um, I like really didn't like at the time because he was like calling me on my shit. But um, mm -hmm. he and I would like make all these rules. Like I was like, okay, like he'd be like, okay, Friday and Saturday you can drink and you can have like two drinks each night. And I was like, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, like, I'm 22, like, I need Thursdays, and, like, nobody drinks two drinks, so, like, I raised it to, like, three, and he was kind of like, okay, like, you're 
kind of like being too much already. And then like immediately I went out and like drank on like a Tuesday or like went to like away for the weekend and like blacked out both nights and like was definitely having, you know, like double digits drinks mm-hmm. and telling this guy I was having like three and I would see him and be like, yeah, it's fine. Like it's going well. So it's like really, I think just scary. And that sounds like the cognitive dissonance and like the disconnect you yeah. can have with that. And like, yeah, going back to what you're saying, it's just like not, it becomes a point where it's not, I mean, it's always a choice in the sense that like, I think sometimes I'm scared to say it's not a choice because like for people who are in that place now, it is, you can get out of it, but you definitely are out of control. Like, especially the second that you make the choice to like pick up alcohol at all. And I think it's like so hard for people who don't have that issue to understand, but that you literally from the second you put alcoholic in your mouth are just like out of control Yeah, or any drug or anything you're addicted Mm to. Uh, let's talk about your sexuality. Uh, when was the first time uh, you realized that you had uh, feelings for uh, boys? I think like sixth grade. Um, from like you know, like watching TV or something, I feel like I was kind of kept being like, "Why am I like paying attention to like this character and not this character?" Like, mm-hmm. and I don't even remember like the exact moment, but I yeah, just remember like through those types of experiences that kind of like leading into that. Mm-hmm. And then I became, like, sexually active when I was 15. What do you remember thinking or feeling when it dawned on you that you were attracted? I remember being distressed. Like, like, I don't think I was, like, totally surprised just because of what I was talking about earlier with, like, always having a feeling of, like, being kind of different from whatever, like, Mm -hmm. mainstream young men or whatever. But, like... Um, I definitely think I was, like, hoping it was a phase or, like, yeah, I just think I was, like, confused and, like, overwhelmed and distressed. And did self-hatred ever present itself? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Because of that issue. Because you you grew up in an era when it was starting to become... Public opinion was starting, the majority of public opinion seems like it was starting to be more tolerant. Right. And I think it's so weird now because I like live in New York and I went to Brown, which is like very gay and very mm-hmm. liberal. And I think I've like built this very gay, LGBTQ mm-hmm. friendly um, life for myself. And also like so much stuff is self selecting. Like the news I read or like the TV personalities I watch or whatever are all of that um, point of view. But yeah, so I think sometimes it's even hard to remember that like when I was growing up, I like didn't know if I'd ever be able to be like legally married or what's that like? I mean, I think it's like obviously like um, dehumanizing because it's like marriage. I feel like for so many people, it's such a like focal Mm -hmm. point of life. Like I think from the time you're little, you think about like you play house and you like, I mean, all that shit was, like, so heteronormative. Like, it's like you play house and there's the mom and the dad and, like, the kids. And, like, you buy toys and it's that. You watch, like, the TV shows of the 90s were that. There wasn't Modern Family. I think, like, Will and Grace probably actually did kind of start later on. But even, like, uh, or not, like, when I was, like, 10 or something. But then also even, like, I remember watching Sex and the City recently and being, like, wow, the, like, portrayals of LGBTQ 
people were so fucked up and like the people who were making these shows were like giving themselves a pat on the back because they were doing it and like having gay characters or like trans characters or lesbian characters but they were like really like stereotypical Mm -hmm. portrayals and I also think a lot of times they did this thing of like presenting especially like gay men as accessories to women that were not like actual people with like complex feelings or like their own wants and needs but like comic relief mm-hmm. who was there to yes. tell you which pair of shoes was ugly yeah, or the, the finger wagging uh, right guy who boils it down with sass right yeah and like i was watching one of my friends texted me the other day and was like watching a sex in the city episode and she was like they literally just referred to like trans women as half man half woman like and i think at the time like i'm sh- like i feel like if a show did that now there'd be like a flood of mm-hmm think pieces and like media being like you can't say that and like this is why where at the time i feel like so many people like probably didn't even think twice or just laughed yeah uh talk to the listener who's listening right now who doesn't believe in same-sex marriage Well, yeah, I think that, um, I mean, obviously my, like, I think this is too such a product of what we're just talking about. Like my inclination is to immediately get very like aggressive and rude. But I mean, I think that the thing to me is like, I just really don't, it's hard for me to understand how you could be so passionate about something that doesn't impact you negatively, but impacts so many other people positively. And I think that um like the right to love people whoever you want to or how whoever and I don't even I don't even like saying want because it's not a choice like people who are gay or bi or trans or whatever um that's how they're born and that's who they are and it's having laws that are selectively applied to punish them for being how they are there's just it's unacceptable and it's cruel And I think that, like, if those people have the opposition for religious reasons, I think they need to read their religious texts a little bit closer and, like, instead of focusing on, you know, loosely worded Old Testament paragraphs where there's one to argue a point, I think they should instead look at the sentiment of all religious texts, which is usually to treat other people how you'd want to be treated and to love everyone and like so basically stop cherry picking agreed agreed yeah the old testament has got some super fucked up shit in it It, you know the old testament like gives the thumbs up to slavery right uh so uh and it's literally a thumb up in the uh in the the (laughs) book it's crudely sketched but it is a right it's a thumbs up and then a hang 10 on the other page (laughs) Uh, well, yeah, it's like, and there's like infanticide and there's like all this shit that you're like, that's what you're like living your life based on. Like, yeah. okay, well, I hope the plagues happen to you then if you're going to like pick all these things. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think the teachings of uh, Jesus are beautiful, you mm-hmm. know, they're, they're, um, and I guess I, I have trouble understanding how somebody could extrapolate that love-based message Right. To 
this other thing. But right, and when you look at like it's a whatever. I mean, I don't, I'm going to make up a number. It's let's say it's a thousand pages. Like nine hundred and ninety of them are kind of like beating you over the head with this point of like love other people, like mm-hmm. help people who are less fortunate than you, um, whatever. And then people will like form this opinion literally based on like. Whatever, what's it called? Like the Fox s- News, Sodom, and yeah, okay. f- yeah, and totally Fox News. But yeah, and I, like I think at the core, all of the world's major religions can be very positive, and I think that just the problem becomes when you focus on these little things and also aren't able to like listen to what people are saying and mm-hmm. cross compare like what you think is your value with like does it actually impact you, whatever you're saying? And like, does it impact other people? And why would you ever put something that doesn't impact you, your opinion on that over like how it would positively impact other people? Yeah. Uh, Somebody who uh, is against gay marriage, I absolutely support their choice to not marry a gay person. Right. Yeah. Same. Uh, So give me uh, a sense of what the, the next phase is and kind of you're beginning to understand yourself and make peace with who you are, who you want to be. Yeah. So I think that, so when I was after that service talking about earlier, um, with like the traffic and then, um, working with that therapist, it was really weird because like, I mean, I think of my, it's easy when you're like an alcoholic to like look at that phase of life and be like, this is my problem. Um, so I stopped drinking like a few weeks after that. Like, so basically like I stopped drinking for a month after the traffic situation. Then I agreed with my therapist to do that. But I was just saying again about like the three nights for two drinks or whatever. And I did that for two weeks and just kept blacking out and just woke up one morning and was like, I can't do this anymore. Like I really believed I was going to die. I was like, at this point I've like been hospitalized so many times and have been to rehab inpatient, outpatient, like, have tried to kill myself, have like accidentally almost died. And I was just like, I'm really going to die. And like, it wasn't worth it. And, um, so I think that like, it's easy when you read a book about drinking or like whatever to be like, okay, like happy ending, like they stopped drinking. But I think what was really like crazy about that period is I did stop drinking and like in certain ways was, um, did I felt much less out of control in the sense that I, you know, wasn't drunk anymore. So, and when you're drunk, it's easier to do crazier shit and like feel like you kind of have an excuse. Um, but I think what was really jarring at that point, because I'd been drinking so heavily and just like abusing drugs for so many years was that I was like, wow, I kind of like thought that I'd stop drinking and it'd be like this thing where I'm like, okay, I'm happy now. And I'm like a highly functional person, whatever, where I was like, so depressed and like I kind of was like okay keep pushing through this but then I just realized that my baseline was like very depressive which makes sense because before I drank I had issues with depression um so then I think that was really helpful though to be at that point because like for the first time in so during all those years of like heavy drinking and abusing drugs I'd also been like on and off all these antidepressants and it was like I don't like this it's like making me tired but I wasn't like acknowledging that I'd had like 12 drinks the night before which is also probably contributing to feeling tired um yeah but trying to judge antidepressants while you're abusing uh uh drugs 
is uh, or recreational uh, drugs or, or alcohol <clears throat> uh, is futile. Right. And until I got sober, I didn't realize, oh, th- my meds work right. when I'm not having 12 beers mm-hmm. uh, a night. You know, when I'm not putting gallons of depressants <laughs> into my body, mm-hmm. my antidepressants work. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that was like such a nice moment that yeah. I had to, um, where I started taking antidepressants and was actually like able to see the difference. Um, what did you think or feel in that moment when you saw that truth? Well, I think it was really refreshing in the sense that like, I think I feel like when you talk about like self medicating, it's easy to like not think that you do it because you think of so many things as behaviors that are so conscious. And like, I think that and I fun. Had, I'm just having fun. Right. And right. I think that I'd always thought of self-medicating as somebody literally being like, I am drinking alcohol to feel better in the way that you'd be like, I am taking Benadryl because I'm having an allergic reaction. Yes. Like that. It was like a very like laser focused <laughs> response. And then yes. I was like, Oh, well I have been like self-medicating for all these like underlying feelings and like, yeah, mental states of being. Um, and yeah, nobody says let's t- let's get together to kill our personal pain. Right? Yeah, <laughs> You're, yeah. You don't call it going out group therapy, yeah. <laughs> even though that's often the aim. Yes. Um, but so I think it was really nice to like to be medicating in a way that I had been doing with alcohol, with you know a prescription drug that was also being monitored by a doctor instead of like lying to a doctor. Yeah. About it. It's amazing when you give them all the information they need to help you, it's amazing how much better they can help you. Right. No, and it's very nice to be at a point in life where when you go to the doctor and they give you the survey, you're not, like, writing a fictional book on it. Yeah. Um, Do you use a pen name when you uh, fill out the fake survey? (laughs) Three drinks. (laughs) Um, So what's what what, uh, is the next kind of arc of getting you to where you are now? Um, any vignettes you want to share that, um, you feel are, um, fitting for your story or just amusing or heartbreaking or baffling? Well, so I guess like the next arc is kind of like continuing on with, um, what I was just talking about with like kind of like rebuilding or like, I don't even know if rebuilding is the right thing to say, because I think that between like eating disorders and drinking problems and like being promiscuous or whatever, I was able to like kind of avoid all of these like scary vulnerable vulnerabilities that are part of growing up. And so like for however many years, like close to 20 years, like all of my coping mechanisms were these things. And I think that, like, that's been so much of the past few years of my life has been, like, being, like, what are my new coping mechanisms? And, like, when can you just not even really use coping mechanisms? And when is a coping mechanism just dealing with the issue? Or, like, Mm -hmm. you know. So I think that, like, being vulnerable in that sense has been, like, a journey that I'm still on. And I think that, like, one of the things that I've realized sometimes, like, as a rebound, like, I feel like when I think of myself as, like, a drunk person... I would like 
say whatever I felt. I would like have these super dark thoughts that I would just say, or I would like burst into tears. Oh, you're one of those drunks. Yeah. And so now this scary thing about being sober is like... Do you realize how many times you've killed the rest of our buzzes? I know. (laughs) I know. Yeah. I had to be brought home a lot. Um, I was just a piece of shit. Yeah. You don't love... You really knew me? You don't love me? But like probably even like crazier than that. Yeah. Um... (laughs) And so I think that one of the things that now I've been dealing with that I think I get the impression a lot of people who have dealt with like addictions do is like not um, having it be like a pendulum that swings too far the opposite way where now like I find that sometimes it's like I never really felt like a very repressed person and now sometimes in sobriety I'm like more repressed just because I feel like I have less like it's harder for me to like talk about how I feel when it's not tied to a crisis because so much of my life kind of was or lubricated by right eight beers right yeah and it's like how figuring out like what an appropriate emotional reaction to something is because like before it was so disastrous or then now I'm like probably sometimes like I'm just not going to react to this thing so it's like that's been an interesting part of being sober I heard somebody say in a support group meeting one time, this person said, my reaction is always immediate, uh, inappropriate, and uh, overly intense. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think a lot of people can relate to that because I I think a lot of people think that the problem is the liquor or the heroin or the shopping or the cheating when it's really the feelings underneath. That's Mm -hmm. just the that's just the these other things are just the cab that you know get you out of town for five or six hours right or that like you know you have these feelings and then you like do especially with like substances rather i mean i guess like cheating and stuff applies to this too but like where you do this thing and then or like you express yourself and it's as you were just saying like over the top and like Mm. so extreme but then you can just blame it on that thing like i feel like and you're still saying things that you kind of mean or like within your hyperbolic, you know, like verbal diarrhea, there are like truths, mm-hmm. but then like those truths, you're able to just then hide again the next day because you're like, I was just drunk and I was being crazy. And people, yeah. especially if they were bothered by the truth, like want to believe that as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My uh, roommate in college, on his uh, 21st birthday, he got really drunk, and he called me a pug-nosed fat face. (laughs) I told him the next day, uh, he was horrified, and uh, he was like, oh, man, I was so drunk. And I go, yeah, and I know I have a pug nose and a fat face, so (laughs) don't sweat it. (laughs) It's nothing I haven't told myself. Uh, Share, if you would, uh, if you can think of a moment where you had a sexual experience and you didn't feel shame or any negative emotion where you felt um, this is who I am and what I'm doing is beautiful and feels good. Um, Yeah, I think it like really took until being like 21 no I guess 22 for me to feel that way and I became sexually active when I was 15 like I feel like all of my I mean I had issues with um like delayed 
I mean, not even delayed ejaculation, but I had sexual dysfunction issues in that, like, it wasn't an erectile dysfunction issue, but it was just that, like, you couldn't I would, pump. Yeah, and I just kind of, like, didn't feel anything. Like, I would just totally, like, kind of shut down. So, like, I, which started this pattern of, like, um, kind of, like, having sexual relationships that weren't about sex. Like, they were about, like, totally about being, like, I guess, like, you could say in a way, like, kind of like a conquest, but, like, I feel like when you say conquest, it makes it sound like you're, like, I'm on a conquest, so, like... Validation? Get, Would that be a better... Yeah, like, it was It was a conquest for emotional validation, and so, like, I had all these relationships where, like, if I would kind of just, like, have sex with somebody and, it, like, wouldn't really mean anything, and then would be just about reinforcing, like, the belief that, like, somebody wanted me, and then, like, also... But, it, th- so, so many of them were, like, once, because I was just, like, that was, like, weird, and... Um, they were just, like, very, like, theatrical in the sense that, like, a lot of times I'd, like, feel weird about the ejaculation thing, so I'd, like, lie and pretend I did or, like, blame it on, like, a medication or whatever um, when it was really just that I was, like, mentally shutting down. Mm-hmm. And so it, it... Did you experience any kind of trauma uh, as a kid? I don't... Honestly, I don't know. Um, once when I was blacked out, I told my parents I did, but, like, right now I don't... Okay. have a memory of that but i mean i feel like i don't know like i haven't actually read all that much about like sexual dysfunction but like i kind of feel like it points to that because mm-hmm. like i was it was even beyond that like i remember like feeling like very like flinchy when people would touch me so mm-hmm. i think that like that kind of i was able to like really work through that with my ex-boyfriend who was my first boyfriend which was when i was 22 and it was like a you know, uphill battle. Like it took months. Yeah. So uh, continuing, uh, let's go back to the coping tools that you've picked up and where you are today, unless I'm missing something. No. Okay. What's the first coping uh, mechanism that you started using uh, where you remember thinking, wow, this, this makes sense. This makes life a little uh, less dramatic. And- yeah, so I think, like, the first and primary one, which is probably very similar to how you feel with, like, the podcast, mm-hmm. is writing has really been the best thing. Because I think, first of all, like, it's forced... Well, actually, therapy's probably been the best one. Because that's mm-hmm. I think, is the best thing for, like, having to say things out loud that you're normally thinking. Mm-hmm. And, like, being able to be like, oh, this is how I feel, now that I've, like, said it out loud. Because sometimes when you're just saying it in your head, you're, like, cycling a thought or it's easy to like convince yourself of things and other people. So I think that especially when it's not being judged by the person you're sharing it with, that's right. a, a really connective moment. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and then the second has been writing. And I think that like one of the coolest things about it, which is probably like, again, how you are with the podcast is like when you talk about or like writing about something and being like, this experience is so specific to me. And like, it's kind of like this thing that, you know, I've spent 20 years trying to hide and then having like, 50 people email me and be like, I'm with you. I like have dealt with that and people you didn't expect. Mm -hmm. And then even like the coolest thing about that, I think is like when you think an issue is like, let's say like totally alcohol related, but then somebody else is like, I've never had an issue with like addiction, but I've had issues with like shame in this way too, or Mm -hmm. like whatever. Um, and then my third thing is like pretty basic of me, but, um, Yoga has become, like, really helpful. 
<laughs> like I, talk, talk about why people might might be uh, laughing uh, about that because I, uh, I I think because I called it basic. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. I missed that. What I slipped it in. Um, well, just like kind of like the like, you know, like there's the phrase like basic bitch now which would kind of be somebody who like has like starbucks and like ugg boots and like whatever so like basic would just be kind of like very stereotypical behaviors that people kind of pretend are nuanced maybe like i got you so you'd be like I yeah you. i like i do this crazy thing like i love yoga and then everyone's like yeah duh everyone loves yoga yeah. <laughs> or you're like yeah i just discovered iced coffee and it's like yeah so did everyone else Okay. But you kind of like make it your thing and you're like you're you. literally like reading the popular yes. cultural checking points. Okay. Um, <laughs> talk about what you get from from doing yoga. Um, well, I think it's like really I guess like interesting on a few levels. Like I think first of all it's like nice to do something like yoga where they're like I mean, it's kind of like when you're playing Twister and you're younger and they're like, move your right foot to the red dot and you have to like focus on doing that. So you can't really like focus on something else, but even, you know, more complicated. Um, So you really kind of just are forced to like disengage from life. Like I feel like... So it's like Twister if you occasionally farted. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Very much so for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, I think that even when you're like running or something, it's still easy to like think about things where I feel like when you're doing yoga, like you kind of can't. Yeah. Especially if you're like being actively engaged. Like if you're going to like child's pose, I'm sure you can still like cycle obsessive thoughts and stuff. Yeah. But like if you're like actually doing the things they're telling you, you would fall on your face. Yeah. And then I think beyond that, like I feel like I never as somebody who did have like body issues and like I didn't really talk about this, but like uh kept you know, hinting at it, but like had a lot of like issues with like bulimia in high school and college and I think that like it's been really nice to like have an experience and even, like, going back to, like, the sex issues and, like, kind of, like, that emotional detachment from your body. Like, I think it's nice t- to do yoga and, like, f- feel connected to it and, like, feel in control of it. And, and see of, how beautiful it is. Yeah, like, the things that it can do. Right. And I think that, like, that's the other thing that I'm trying to work on is, like, and I feel like we were talking about this a little bit before, but, like, how sometimes it's hard... Like, I feel like sometimes I'm so, it's hard for me to, like, talk about things, like, being like, yeah, it's, like, cool to see how beautiful your body is because you feel, like, corny or whatever or, mm-hmm. like, disingenuous, and but that is how I feel from it. And I think that it's also, like, a community that really embraces people, like, looking at themselves in that way and, like, loving themselves, which I think is, we all need activities that we, push us to do that. Absolutely. Um, talk briefly about the... Um, eating disorder is that something that's under control today um what did it look like at its worst yeah so i think that like i mean it's interesting talking about this because i feel like it all kind of hit at once and like i feel like that really started around the same time that i started drinking and it was like very um intertwined and like for all of high school like i was a runner and would like exercise a ton but would also like just binge Mm-hmm. And then would throw up and like, would, you know, like after school, like I remember like leaving school and getting these like giant cookies we sold and just like going home and it, that just being like kind of like my thing. And like the thing that I did by myself that felt like it was like relieving stress and it just went on for like a long time. And would, um, you, would you, when you would buy the cookie and you were on your way to eat it, would you feel 
already high a little bit? Like your adrenaline starts yeah. going? Yeah. And I think that like one of the things that's really weird, and I guess all of this is related, like binge drinking and binge eating, and like even now when I'm drinking like water or something, I like realize that I drink so much faster than other people. Or like when food comes, I eat so much faster than other people. And like I still have that like anxious inclination to just like gorge on things. So I think that like it's definitely better, but I think that like most issues, like it's something that I have to think about every day. And I also like I work from home and if I so if like if I don't pay attention sometimes I find that I like avoid eating or whatever and mm-hmm. like so it's something that I have to be like you have to eat right now or like this is what's healthy and normal to do. Um but yeah, and I found that one thing that was kind of always happened with like the combination of like drinking and eating things is I always felt like I needed like a problem to have that was kind of like like when I I remember in college I stopped drinking my junior year for like two months and like immediately went to the gym and like ran nine miles and then was like kind of just like became focused on like not eating and exercising it was just like I needed someplace to like put that energy Mm -hmm. and like in a weird way probably even convinced myself that it was like healthy Mm -hmm. and it's that's been bizarre but I think that like one of the um, parts that's good scary about growing up but also good is that like you kind of realize when you're in the adult world like your friends aren't living on top of you you're not living with your parents and you're like if I like if I wanted to sit at my house all day and drink wine and throw up and whatever I could and there's nobody who could really stop me so I think that like the best thing about being a quote-unquote adult um, is that you kind of have to take the responsibility for that and like that desire to want to be okay mm-hmm. has to come from you where like growing up I think it was like so easy to like feel out of control and then like have these like really crazy issues and have people like Mm -hmm. intervening and like the interventions begin to like feel like the people who intervene are the people who care about you or whatever and it's like this cycle of like really acting out and like having people intervene and that proves that you're like loved and so I think it's nice to like not to be given the freedom to have your shitty idea played out completely right yeah to see hey how'd that go yeah, not right. so good. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And to like have to deal with those repercussions yourself, but also just to like have the interventions come from yourself. Because I think that when you have like mental health issues and like have mm-hmm. for so long, you like kind of have to be constantly like mm-hmm. your own parent a little bit or something and like have interventions with yourself where you're literally like, What the fuck are you doing? Mm-hmm. and like kind of rein it in and like just take care of yourself. Yeah. Uh to wrap it up, if you if if you would share a moment, if you can think of one, where you're learning to be vulnerable, um, helped you, or felt like a breakthrough, and you connecting to a person in a way that you'd never done it before. Yeah, I think like the way that I've always struggled the most with being vulnerable is like romantically. And it, so I feel like when I was, I don't know, like I think that like the fear of like rejection or whatever, that like inadequacy kind of like fueled that. And like with my first relationship, like I really did kind of, for part of it, um, become more vulnerable. And like I feel like that allowed me to like have a relationship where like that's 
an area of my life that like then once that ended I think that like as I was saying earlier sometimes the pendulum swings too far and I kind of just like shut down that area of my life so that's something that I'm again working on and like realizing why it's I don't know sometimes I'm like I'm focusing on my career like blah 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 but that's like deflection and so that's an area of my life that I'm again working on and having to remind myself about the rewards of being vulnerable in that area and it's like interesting that like this right now is easier for me than like being vulnerable on a date you know what I mean like for a lot of people this would be like their biggest fear but for me I'm like I don't this yeah. is fun um yeah. and where the, I'm like you know dating somebody and being honest sounds like you know, to some people, like getting a cage of rats put on their head. Um, so I'm working on it. Uh, anything else you'd like to share? Um, not that I can think of. Thank you all. Sorry that I wasn't looking at yeah. you. Seamus Curse, everybody. And thank you guys so much for coming out. Thank you for continuing to support the podcast. It means, it means so, so much to me. Thank you. Really, really enjoyed talking to uh, Seamus. Such a bright guy. And uh, yeah, check his book out. It's called Shitfaced. We'll put a link to that on the uh, on the website. Uh, let me tell you about Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulate your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that-sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend a third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. I think those of us that listen to this podcast and uh, or participate in it, uh, it's probably closer to half half our life or one one-hundredth of our life for those of us that have insomnia. Uh, they sent me a Casper mattress and, uh, I love it. I slept on it last night. I slept, uh, I'm tempted to say slept like a baby, but sometimes babies, uh, don't sleep too well. So I slept on it like a, a, uh, like a very satisfied adult male. How's that, how's that sound? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, super comfortable and I didn't even eat ice cream before I went to, uh, went to bed and, um, uh, yeah, what what they say is true. It was easy to unbox. And if you think that I'm just saying this because they're an advertiser, go look at the uh, the reviews on Amazon. It's gets amazing reviews. Anyway, start start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get 50 bucks towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash mental and using mental at checkout. That's casper.com slash mental and then the offer code mental for 50 bucks off your mattress purchase terms and conditions apply let's uh let's also give uh give some love to quip electric toothbrush i've been using one now for about a month and a half and uh, it's awesome and you know the holidays around the season here's here's some thoughts uh why it'd be a good gift uh, number one uh it'd be gift that people would actually use every day, not something that'll just get thrown in a drawer. Uh, number two, you don't have to go to a store to get it. Quip uh, can ship directly to your door or theirs. And number three, it's that perfect $25 price point for those secret 
Santa you struggle with every year. I always, I, I never know. I always hate when I get paired with somebody and I know nothing about them. And I'm not interested in <laughs> knowing anything about them. Uh, but listen, with Quip, you don't have to worry about getting new brush heads or toothpaste. They're delivered right to your door on schedule so you replace your brush on time and have better oral hygiene at an affordable price with the sleekest design you've ever seen for an electric toothbrush. And that, that ain't no lie, man. It looks like, it looks like Steve Jobs designed it, minus, minus the bullying and the, and the being pushy. Uh, they're toothpaste. Uh, I like the taste of it. It's clean. It's mini. Um, I think you dig it. You know, there's no charger. There's no wires. It's compact. It's light. It's sweet. Anyway, Quip starts at just 25 bucks. And right now, when you go to getquip.com slash mental, you can get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash mental. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash mental. Let's get to some soy base. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Dave. And about his depression, he writes, It's off and on. When when it's on, it feels like there's never been another feeling in my life. Oh my God, yes. You can't even imagine what it was like to have been happy. It's just kind of a vague memory of like, you know, like a great-grandfather whose face you remember vaguely from a picnic when you were three. About his anxiety, waiting to die badly and unexpectedly. I had a panic attack one time. It was after uh, I had just moved here in 1994, moved to L.A., and uh, my uh, wife at the time, ex-wife now, um, we'd been there a week, and this massive fucking earthquake hits. And it... After the after the, the the quake settled down, the first time I got high, I had a panic attack, and I was convinced that another quake was going to hit the next second. And I just laid on the bed with my heart racing, and uh, she was on the road doing stand up. And I just remember I was I, I couldn't even pick up the phone and and talk to anybody. I, I was just I truly. Th- felt I was in fear for my life. I've never had one since then. Um, but whew, I, I really have a lot of uh, empathy for those of you that experience them uh, on a regular basis. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself quit giving Sedona a hard time. I've never even been to Sedona, so uh, I really should uh, quit making fun of them. Because uh, I don't want me them coming after me in their guru robes. You know, you'd probably hear their sandals a mile away. Uh, I c- felt compelled to fill this out after hearing surveys and letters here by listeners who have cut themselves and who are afraid that the scars will keep them from making meaning- meaningful social connections or getting a job. I cut myself between the ages of 14 and 20 in very visible areas on my arms and even once on my face. At the time, I was incapable of imagining a future for myself, and I was desperate to discharge my emotional pain somehow. 
I stumbled upon cutting myself as a temporary relief and gave no thought to the long-term consequences of doing so. I stopped when I was 20, probably because I realized that I was going to have to live a whole life past my teenage years, and it dawned on me that I would have to take my body with me, scars and all. I had a lot of deep shame about cutting, and I still hadn't healed the underlying emotional trauma that caused me to cut myself. I was scared about what people would think of me, if I'd ever find anyone who could love me, if I'd get through a job interview without being dismissed. There have been a few painful interactions. A manicurist who noticed my scars, made a face, and refused to look me in the eye. But I've had plenty more interactions with people who either didn't notice or it was a non-issue for them. I've had positive interactions, too, like the nurse at my doctor's office who very gently mentioned the scars, noticing that they were not fresh, and asked how everything was now. I told her that things were better. I was so touched by her compassion and kindness, and it still brings tears to my eyes to think of it now, ten years later. I finally found a great therapist, and then in parentheses, fifth times the charm, who helped me understand and heal the emotional pain that caused the cutting in the first place. I met a wonderful woman who knows everything about me and still loves me as I am, and we are married now. I have a great church community, and some of them know the story behind the scars, and beyond caring about me and wanting me to be okay, it's a total non-issue. I have a job where I sometimes sit at the reception desk, so I am the first person the clients see when they walk in. I've worn sleeveless shirts and let the scars on my arms be visible, and more often than not, I'll skip the makeup in the morning so the scar on my face is visible. The scars have never been mentioned by anyone in a professional capacity. I've become friends with a colleague of mine who is very talented, and I admire her very much. We went out for drinks one night and got into some deep talking about our pasts. I mentioned that I used to cut myself to cope with pain, uh, the pain that I didn't understand. She nodded and said that she used to cut as well and that she had seen my scars and felt safe talking to me because she thought we might be the same. I know this isn't a moment per se, but maybe the happy moment for me is that I made it through the cutting years and I'm still here to fill this out. I also want anyone who has cut themselves and has scar shame to know that even though the scars are a part of the story, they are not the whole story and people see so much more than the marks we leave on ourselves. That is some profound beautiful survey taken right there. Thank you so much for that. This is uh, filled out by Supernova Consciousness and about being a sex crime victim. She writes, Why am I the only one who believes I have more to offer than just my body? About experiencing racial or cultural bias, she writes, Not minority enough to not be a race traitor, not stereotypical enough to be the token. Thank you for sharing that. I see that so often under the uh, racial and cultural bias uh, on this on this survey, and a lot of uh, the the thing about not being enough of one or enough of the other, and just feeling like you're between two worlds. This is a shame and secrets survey. Uh, also, I should mention. Um, I got an email from somebody, and it wasn't the first time I've gotten this email where people want uh, a trigger warning before I read stuff that is um, kind of violent or sexual or involves, you know, a combination of the two. And I kind of feel like this that there's so much heavy shit discussed in 
this podcast, that it'd be, I'd be giving a trigger warning all the time. But what I, maybe I should say is whenever you guys hear me read from this, uh, survey, the shame and secrets survey, um, that's the one that usually has, if somebody's triggering in it, that's usually the thing that, that does it for somebody. Um, so if you're worried about being triggered uh, and you hear me start to read one of those surveys, maybe, um, fast forward, um, through it. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself loves moon shadows. She is, uh, bisexual. Uh, she's in her 40s and was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. Uh, when I was ages 8 to 11, my older brother would visit my bedroom at night and molest me. I, I feel oddly disconnected from it and am definitely not close with my brother now. I've taken something bad and turned it into good by taking significant measures to ensure my own young daughters have the language needed to report. They are aware of good touch, bad touch, good secrets, and bad secrets. They are not allowed to go on sleepovers, and we talk openly about our bodies being private and that they say what is acceptable for them. Uh, she's been emotionally abused but never been physically abused. My mother was and continues to be emotionally abusive to me ever since I was 19. I am 45 now. Um, that's interesting that she started when you were 19. Unfortunately, I'm now seeing this directed towards my daughters, and I've put in place significant boundaries to ensure they feel safe and loved, and this does not happen to them. I've made boundaries with my mother, and she is currently not in my life. I feel deeply liberated by not having a relationship with her. I'd be lying if I said it didn't still hurt. I'm processing through the fact that I didn't have the mother I deserve to have and that I never will. I'm using the energy to ensure I am the kind of mama my daughters deserve and take my role and responsibility seriously. Any positive experiences with your abusers? When I was going through my divorce a couple of years ago, my mother was very supportive during this time and helped get my new life situated and was emotionally and financially very supportive. Of course, when all was said and done, this was held over my head and I was made to feel ridiculed for this help and told that she wished she had never helped me. And this happened in front of my daughters. Darkest thoughts. There are times when I long for the day that my mother will no longer walk this earth so that I don't have conflicted feelings of hating her and then wanting to attempt to win her approval that I know I will never have. I long for the day when that internal struggle finally ends and I am free of that turmoil. I fantasize about walking away from my life to go live on a beach somewhere and have no connection or responsibilities to anyone or anything. Freedom waves in the sun and bugs. <laughs> Darkest secrets. I was convicted of embezzlement when I was 21 years old. I tried to buy my way out of emotional, emotional turmoil and instead bought my way into a prison cell. I have since turned my life around but still have emotional struggles. I've made open adoption plans for two children and have very strong positive ongoing relationships with both of my birth children. I've had three abortions. Uh, I am a single mom to two amazing daughters. All in all, I have been pregnant seven times that I am aware of. While I love all of my children, I feel like a baby-making machine and have shame about my abortions. Thank you for sharing that. Um, 
sexual fantasies most powerful to you? Uh, I want to be the female with two males pleasuring me at once. I want to be desired and wanted and pleased in all ways that would encompass, um, in all ways that would encompass. Uh, I feel empowered by sharing this. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd love to tell my mother to fuck off for being so hurtful and so destructive to me emotionally. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for someone to actually fight for me, fight to keep me. I wish for someone to think I was worthy enough to stand up for me. I do this for myself, but wonder what it would feel like for someone else to deem me worthy. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I've shared my sexual fantasy with my partner, and he loves the idea and loves to talk about it with me during sex. It's very powerful. How do you feel after writing these things down? A bit lighter. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Hang in there and be the best you can be for yourself. If someone did something to you you didn't deserve, don't repeat it. Be the change. I wanted to read your survey because I think it is such a great example of somebody overcoming some really hard stuff and getting to a place where you're setting boundaries, you're protecting your kids, um, you're, you know, you had committed a crime, but now you've turned your life around, um, and, and you are, you're, you're sex positive, you're in touch with your feelings, um, yeah, it, it's just like a, um, to me, this is like a realistic, this is what, like a realistic version of what recovery looks like, you know? It's it's never going to be, uh, you know, some Disney version where there's no insecurity and no struggle and, you know, we don't long for anything. Um well, there are there are some people like that, and they all live in Sedona. Oh, see now, she, somebody sent me an email saying, um, you know, Sedona is not all that you think you think it is. And actually, I'm 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 trying to be open minded about it. A listener said that crystals really help them, and would uh, I like to try some? They'd be happy to send me some. So I said, sure, sure. So um, you know, maybe I'll be eating my words. This is a happy moment filled out by, oh, one other thing that I wanted to mention. I got a really beautiful email from um, a listener, and he, uh, we had had a sponsor on um, a little while back, and it was for um, meat products. And and he he wasn't shaming me. He was just saying that he was disappointed that I was contributing to the... Um, industrialized slaughter of of animals and um and while it didn't while this was not news to me um i when i had accepted that ad i didn't leave enough time to reject it through um the agency that books them and so i felt obligated to keep that ad but I said that please tell them that I don't want to do any more ads for them because I feel like it's bad enough that I still eat meat I I don't want to be promoting it um and the way that he said it was so gentle 
and not shaming. It just, it really, uh, it really touched me. But I wanted to also mention that for anybody else that was, um, kind of disturbed by, uh, me promoting that. Um, and honestly, if, if I were really more confident in myself and probably in, in less uh, fear of making somebody in the business world upset, I would have canceled it regardless of how, how much notice. Um, so anyway, this is a happy moment filled out by piano trapped in my soul. And they write, uh, the first one was, well, actually there's just one that I'm going to read. I was nine years old when my grandfather died. After the funeral, we went outside to spread his ashes, but it wasn't as ceremonious as I anticipated. Our parents filled red party cups with dry gray ash. I realized this was all that was left of my grandfather. My aunt yelled uh, out to us, realizing her mistake, Don't drink it, kids! It made us all laugh hysterically for the first time since his death, and it felt so good and made it easier to let go of someone we love. Thank you for that. Um, I really loved my uh, my uh, mother-in-law. Um, and she died in 96, and I was so, so upset. She was just just the sweetest woman and um, had many of the qualities I think I had craved as a as a child and um, in, a, in a mother and that's not to say my mom didn't do some stuff that was right um, uh, but when she my mother-in-law died um, I <laughs> there was nobody. There was nobody crying harder uh, at at the uh, ceremony, and I think it was because it was the first time I felt a kind of safe older maternal presence in my life. And now she was she was gone. And uh, one of the th- my, the point of all of this is, I thought we need to celebrate her, and she was. She was really funny, not like in an intentional way, just kind of she was goofy and and uh my ex wife and her sisters you know they'd always you know uh, they'd make fun of her, but in a loving way, and there was all kinds of footage uh of her and uh I said, "Let's go home and just play movies of her and remember what we loved about her because she died a really really slow painful death from uh, from cancer and and it really helped so anybody out there that that is um grieving or you're about to lose somebody um it there there can be ways to um deal with it that while certainly don't take the pain away can um Bring some meaning to it. Soften it a little bit, even if it's just temporary. Listen to the episode too with uh, Caitlin um, Doty, and uh, it's a it's a good it's a good one. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself. My vibrator is named the Master Sob Five Thousand. Uh, Master Sob is a reference to a, a name that we came up for the act of. Uh, 
masturbating and crying at the same time. I think we also have a word for um, crying and uh, standing at the sink eating junk food as well. Uh, what is Sob gobbling. That's what we call it, sob gobbling. And I think there's even one for eating cake, masturbating, and crying at the same time. I don't know what that's called, a hat trick? I forget what we called it. Anyway, uh, her struggle is uh, about having a partner that cheated. Uh, And in a sentence she writes, the one person who has the power to comfort you when you need it most is also the one person who broke you. Uh, Having OCD and then finding out that your partner cheated on you means that you get to punish yourself with thoughts and images over and over and and over and over in an infinite loop. That must be it must be really, really fucking brutal. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by Al, and he writes, uh, walking a best friend's dog for him while he and his partner gave birth to their first child in their home. It was pouring rain, and I was so drenched, but I needed to tire the dog out so he wouldn't get in the way of the birth. I felt so, so lucky to be a part of their lives, to have them trust me and need me on one of the biggest days of their lives. I dropped the dog off and went home. A few hours later in the morning, I walked back over and held the tiny, soft, sweet, brand new little person who now calls me uncle as the morning sun streamed in. Wow. That was like a poem. Thank you for that, Al. Um... This is, I'm going to actually starting to feel a little uh, sleepy. I'm going to cut to our last two, our last two uh, surveys. This is an awful some moment. Uh, you know how I, I talk sometimes about how there are themes that appear in the surveys that I gather together for uh, for a given uh, episode. Um, friends was kind of the theme of, of this week's. And um, I want to end with these these two. One is an awfulsome moment and the other is a happy moment. Um, and even the awfulsome moment, I think there's a, there's a, a, a happiness to it. Um, this woman calls herself Mother's Perfect Doll. And she writes, As I was hanging out with my friends, one of them decided to use the N-word. I'm black and feel very uncomfortable with anyone using it, and my friends are Latino. They would apologize to me for using it and repeat the cycle. My social anxiety and fear of confrontation prevented me from saying anything. The next day, I was so ashamed that I was unable to tell them to stop, but rather just sat there like an idiot. Two days after the event, I remember my therapist telling me, Whatever I was feeling was valid, and writing is a help tool for me. I drafted a very long text message and sent it out to them explaining how hurtful their behavior was, how it made me feel, and that they should never use the N-word. Also immediately, they replied with apologies and promises to never use the word. I don't care for their apologies, for this was the first time in my life I took something from therapy, applied it, and was validated. It proved to me that year and a half of therapy is working. Thank you for that. That is one of the greatest things 
when you start to recover in a support group or therapy and you got a new tool and you just feel like, like for me, one of the best tools was realizing I don't have to stay on the phone until the other person is done. Or I don't even have to return the phone call of somebody that I don't want in my life. Um, yeah. God, that was so freeing. And finally, this is a happy moment filled out by all I want is to stop being a perfectionist. And she writes, it happened a few years ago, but I think about it every time I'm struggling to be happy. I spent all of my senior year of undergrad working on a thesis, and it was a grueling process tying together what seemed like everything I had ever studied during college. I was exhausted but proud of everything that I had done, and so the couple of weeks before I was slated to give a presentation on my paper, I invited every single person I knew to come see my presentation. I didn't have high hopes. Most of my friends weren't in my department, and though I was passionate about my topic, I knew it was arcane and not the kind of thing people wanted to spend time listening to. I thought maybe if I was lucky, a couple of my friends would come. But on the day of my presentation, a few minutes before my time slot, my friends started filing into the presentation room. Even some students I had TA'd for and some of my professors arrived. The room was small, so though only a dozen or so extra people had arrived, a couple of them were sitting on the floor just to hear me speak. As I stepped up to the podium, I could tangibly feel the support, like a blanket wrapped around me. When I looked out to the audience, my audience, I saw the excited faces of all the people who were important to me, who had helped to make my college experience truly magical, who had taught me what real good friendship and love look like, smiling back at me. I kicked ass in the presentation. As soon as I finished speaking and stepped away from the podium, all my best friends came rushing up to me to give me a giant group hug and tell me how much they loved my project, how interesting they thought it was, and how they could tell that I had worked really hard. It wasn't a grand gesture. They just showed up. But it's a reminder to me when I'm having a rough time that no matter how bad things are, I've got people in my corner who will always, always have my back. Beautiful. Beautiful. That, yes, that one might not, that one might be so much more than beautiful. It is B E A U. Beautiful. All right, now, now I'm annoying myself. Um, you know, I think that to myself sometimes when uh, at some of my support groups, uh, we form a circle and we'll do, you know, maybe some type of, uh, maybe say the serenity prayer or something. And it occurred to me one day, and it was at a men's meeting, and there's like 40 of us, you know, arms interlocked, smiling at each other, some of us with our heads down. And and it occurred to me, this is who I go through my life with. I'm not going through it alone. I can tap into the power of these people and the people in my other support groups if I choose to. And all of a sudden I realized, wow, the world isn't as scary and lonely as I had always thought it was. And um, I think back on that when I go through stuff, that um, when you allow people that are safe and loving into your life and you 
treat them the same way in return. It's, it's just a really cool feeling. It's like a good gang. (laughs) It's like, it's like being in a big lame gang. It'd be funny to see two big support group gangs rumble under the viaduct. One of them's got a broken coffee pot. The other one has the pen from the phone list. All right, that's enough. That's enough out of me. If you're out there and you're struggling, just reach out. Reach out for help. There's so many people, no matter what it is that you're feeling, there is somebody else that feels just like you that wants to know that they're not alone. And um, if you can find each other or even a group of you, it makes life not only bearable, but fun, enjoyable. And um, yeah, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.